Hi, I'm Dr. Peter Smith, Director of the Centre for Disability Employment Research and Practice, and welcome to today's podcast. Uh, our guest today will be Carly Friedman. Carly is the Director of Research for the Council on Quality Leadership, and she'll be here to discuss all things behaviour support and CQL uh, in Carly's role. Uh, she hosts all of their data analysis or oversees all of their data analysis research and research projects while focusing on quality of life and community integration and the social determinants of integration and ableism. Carly won't be too far away from joining us. Um, and we'll have a really interesting conversation today. So a little bit about CQL. I'm just looking at their website and no doubt we'll get Carly to fill in some of the, the um, more detail. But it's been functioning since 1969. And there's a leader in the field of working with human services and systems to continuously define, um, measure and improve quality of life and quality of services for youth, adults and older adults with intellectual and developmental and psychiatric disability. So, and according to their website, their vision is a world of dignity, opportunity and community for all people. And their mission is dedicated to the definition, measurement and improvement of personal quality of life. And Carly is just joining us now. And let me press the button. And Hello. Carly, good morning. Carly. <laughs> good morning to you. Good Afternoon morning. for me. I, but... <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So welcome to the podcast. And I've just got your website open and I've just sort of done a little bit about, you know, you've been functioning since 1969. So firstly, to tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Sure. So <laughs> I am the director of research for CQL, who you were just introducing, the Council on Quality and Leadership. And we are an international nonprofit that partners with human service organizations and systems to continuously define, measure, and improve quality of life and quality of services for youth, adults, and older adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities and psychiatric disabilities. So a lot of my research is about quality of life, social determinants of health, community living, person-centered services, and ableism, because it's all, it's all connected to quality of life and quality of services for people with disabilities. Right. Uh, and it, it's really quite fascinating to actually have a conversation with you now. Um, I've actually been looking at uh, the work and been influenced by uh, Jim Gardner's work for quite a few decades. And weirdly enough, uh, um, I have um, his 1999 book, Quality Performance in Human Services, sitting on my desk. <laughs> Whether that's a design or just it accidentally found its way onto my desk. But it's a, it, it certainly is from my perspective, and it's been a bit of a, a bit of a gold standard for quite a while. Um, and, you know, and certainly, you know, I go back and say my mentor, Trevor Parmenter, is an old mate of Jim's, so I guess maybe that part of it is that uh, Trevor tends to point me at people that I should know um, and be influenced by. So I guess why don't we start from the perspective where what I was looking at recently, it was uh, you produced a paper on behaviour support. Um, can you tell me, tell us a little bit about that paper? Sure. So a lot of my work, I found that the concept of respect kept coming up and uh, was related to all these different areas of quality of life and having a huge impact on all the areas of quality of life. So for this paper in particular, I was interested in exploring how 
if we if we train support staff in dignity and respect, how that could impact the so-called challenging behaviors that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities exhibit. And so for this study, we looked at that relationship, training support staff in dignity and respect and those challenging behaviors that people had. And we found that, in fact, when you train support staff regarding dignity and respect and to treat each person as a unique individual, the number of the, the challenging behaviors behavior events that people had dropped significantly. So it actually dropped 61%, which is a huge impact, especially when you're thinking about the size of organizations and how many people they support and how drastically that could change, not only organizations experiencing behavior events, but also people's quality of life. You know, if you're not having these so-called behaviors, it, it's probably because you're having a better quality of life. Right, that's interesting um, because in my uh, thesis work many years ago, one of the, the uh, primary um, one of the primary drivers of successful employment outcomes of people with a disability was the quality of the relationship underpinned by trust and respect. And yet, mm -hmm. in your work, you see the same thing. So it, it seems that one of the underpinning factors or one of the primary drivers around a lot of things we see in terms of outcomes or, or negative outcomes is that quality around the relationship and the trust and the respect that's there. And yet mm -hmm. we still have a situation where if you look across service provision, we see numerous examples where this isn't at front of mind of, of the service provision. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so we agree on that point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. So, so I guess I think there's also. Go, on. go ahead. I was just gonna say I, I think there's also uh, not always a recognition what behavior is and that it's communication. So you were just talking about relationships. So people that are having challenging behaviors, it could be because they don't have those fulfilling relationships, or because they're trying to communicate about something else going in their on in their life. So maybe they have a physical or medical condition that's not diagnosed or not treated. Uh, they could be experiencing, you know, unmet needs or abuse and neglect or a lack of opportunities or a lack of relationships. So it's, it's all connected and all those things obviously would play into employment and employment services as well. Right. You, you mentioned communication and that was one of the things that mm -hmm. used to pop up frequently when I, when I used to work with direct support staff in the field and what I used to often explain to them is that what you might see as a challenging behaviour is just really a frustration around their inability to to explain or communicate what the issue or problem or mm -hmm. their need is and yet we still don't see that as as something that's at front, I guess, of the, the teaching around working with people and supporting people rather than working. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, supporting people, we seem to ignore the communication aspect of, of the, 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 shall we say, the, the behaviour that challenges us. Yeah, but too often we don't explore those alternative causes that could be going on in the background. And uh, unfortunately, it, it leads to a lot of people that exhibit these challenging behaviors being institutionalized or placed on medications that maybe if we did a little more digging or people had a little more training of what to look for, how to communicate, that we could avoid those situations. Right. What did your research tell you in, in relation to behavior support in the employment setting? So this paper wasn't specific about 
employment, but I have done a little bit of other work and um, it's the same relationship. You know, if people have meaningful work activities and days, they have fewer challenging behaviors. If staff are, you know, trained or have more training, people, it can trickle down. So, for example, if staff are treated with dignity and respect themselves, you'll see fewer challenging behaviors amongst people with IDD because it trickles down to the services that staff are providing and then the experiences of people with IDD. So it, our, the research wasn't employment specific, but it certainly implies, applies to areas of employment. People are well, more fulfilled, they have more opportunities, less challenging behaviors is what we're seeing. Right, and, and I, I guess the thing is, whilst I recognise the paper wasn't specifically about employment, mm -hmm. the reality is that, uh, unfortunately, employment is viewed as, as one of those things over there, not part of, shall we say, the normal life journey of someone with sure. disability, and yet that's a nonsense. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you find in terms of whatever tools you're using in lifestyle, which is primarily where people end up getting their support, can equally be applied in in employment, it, it's one of those oddities where we see people go, oh, no, we only do lifestyle support. And it's like, well, what do you do? And they talk about things like, you know, we help people develop the skills to, you know, be able to get out of bed on time and get, catch a train and do all this sort of stuff, which are actually employment skills. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's just one of the oddities from my perspective is that when you start thinking about behaviour support, and the, the work you're doing in educating people. What are you teaching them? What are you highlighting to them? I think the ins and outs of what respect really means. I mean, you say, you know, make sure you're respecting someone. I feel like we all have a concept of what that means, but really it's a lot, there's a lot more involved. So it's kind of both bigger our respect and little our respect. So it's the larger respect of, you know, making sure you're respecting people's rights, making sure you're respecting and recognizing people's personhood to more daily interactions of you know, listening to someone, respecting their choices, making sure they have opportunities and self-determination and control over their own lives, not speaking down to per people, um, recognizing people's strengths instead of just focusing on weaknesses. And certainly something like that would relate to employment as well. Just recognizing that people have inherent value and giving them opportunities and things that they're interested in and not just, you know, here's a job, you, you know, we don't really care <laughs> if it's something that you're interested in, but you should be lucky to have it <laughs> type of thing. Yeah, it's unfortunate that, that, that that's, I mean, that's what you see quite regularly. It's about any job, not a meaningful job that, and, and people mm -hmm. sort of get a little bit bent up about that and they go, well, you know, it's, it's employment. They should be, should be grateful. But the reality is most of us have a job that provides meaning to us. So why would mm -hmm. we not apply those same set of standards to someone with a disability? Because if, if you extrapolate that out a little bit further, if you put someone in a job that's not meaningful to them, I'm reasonably certain that's probably going to set the, the scene for some sort of um, behavioural problem somewhere down the line. Absolutely. Yes, the, the research is pretty clear on that. If people don't have interesting and fulfilling opportunities, so if they're participating in kind of menial work or work of not of their choosing, um, they're going to participate in more challenging behaviors. I mean, we know this personally. Like, if you've ever worked a job that you didn't really enjoy or you found miserable, uh, you certainly probably weren't the most sunny or friendly person. I know uh, my first job was at a grocery store, and that was my experience.
my my first job was was actually um, working for Revlon bottling perfume. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually enjoyed that job. I'm sure people on the train used to look at me and go, wow, that's kind of a weird-smelling dude over there. Um, but I, that's a clearly obvious thing. If you're doing something that you don't like, you're going to exhibit negative behaviours. Um, mm-hmm. When you start to look at the work you're doing, and clearly CQL has a long history, and particularly if you look at what maybe where you were a year ago and contrast that with where we are today in in mm-hmm. our setting where we're having a bit of an issue, which is an understatement, I guess. Are you seeing anything that suggests that we're actually going backwards at the moment in terms of, of how we're delivering programs to people with disabilities? I know a lot of agencies in the US right now are really struggling to provide services, even basic health and safety. I mean, um, staff staffing was always an issue and, and you put on top of that COVID and everything that comes with it, it kind of you know multiplies exponentially. But I have heard from a lot of agencies that they are having to shift how they do their day services, um, obviously because you can't get, gather in groups and that's usually what a lot of day services in the US involve. Um, so they're trying to work that out and figure out what do we do, especially when people are having to stay home. Now, uh, obviously, no one is having a great time right now, but also that presents us with an opportunity to reframe what employment and day activity services could be, what the potential is there um, to radically rework how those things function. Right. So we... In, in the current set of circumstances, I mean, everybody's pretty much exhibiting challenging behaviour. Um, <laughs> certainly, you know, if you, as we are here in, in Victoria, where I am, where, where we have curfews and, and you can't leave your house. Um, mm-hmm. Challenging behaviour is almost a norm. And, and I'm wondering if we, when we eventually come out of this, I wonder where we'll be in terms of service provision and particularly around the sort of behaviours that we might mm-hmm. be starting to see that once upon a time were considered, shall we say, challenging for someone with a disability or rather those of us that support it. Now it may well be that everybody's exhibiting challenging behaviour. There's mm-hmm. almost a weird opportunity to actually change the narrative. Absolutely. Perhaps people have a little bit more empathy about what those behaviors are like or the causes of them. But I could also see, you know, I think there are a lot of going to be a bunch of people that have long-term trauma from maybe not even getting COVID themselves, but uh, not understanding what's going on or the stress of living under these situations. So um, it'll definitely be interesting. So so let's pivot a little bit and, and talk about the, the work of CQL itself. Um, can you tell us a little bit of, a bit more about the work that you do? Because obviously, clearly, it's a very broad brush when I look at the website. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So we have a few different branches or arms at CQL. One is accreditation, where we go to, well, normally we would visit the human service organizations that <laughs> we're doing more virtual work these days. Uh, but we go and we partner with these organizations and try to help them improve the quality of their services and supports, and by extension, the quality of life of people with disabilities. Another arm is training and certification. So we have a tool called the Personal Outcome Measures. It's a person-centered 
discovery quality of life measure, which I use for a lot of my research. So we train people and organizations how to use that tool, both to determine what the people they support, what they want in their lives and how supports can be targeted, as well as in the aggregate form, you can kind of measure the status of your organization, where your gaps are, where opportunities are for improvement. So we do training and certification about that tool. And then we also have some customized training as well. Another branch is research. That's more my area. So I use a lot of our tools, like the personal outcome measures, the basic assurances, as well as a bit of other data that I have access to, and just explore quality of life, how we can improve quality of services. And then we also do some work with some states and local government entities to help them improve their services so they're more person-centered. Right. Very broad brush. <laughs> when, when, we look, <laughs> when, when you look at your work, particularly around behaviour support, and I'll just come back to that again, uh, what do you see evolving in, in the future of behaviour support? Because it's a topic that that is front of mind in a lot of service provision today around, and, and largely because of, shall we say, the negative consequences and the way support has been delivered. But what are you seeing as the evolution of behaviour support? Or are you seeing something? Um, I will I, I, I optimistically say I'm seeing a bit of a shift in behaviour support. I think there is a bit more recognition, and we're certainly trying to push this as well, that behavior is communication. There are a lot of factors involved, and not just jumping to putting someone on a behavior plan and, you know, trying to do ABA, for example, but really, really trying to examine and rule out any physical or environmental causes to the behavior, you know, making sure you're teaching communication and alternative communication methods and coping strategies to both people supported and staff. So you have communication partners that understand what people are trying to express. Um, and also, again, training support staff about competencies, behavioral supports, really trying to shift towards positive behavior supports or alternative mechanisms rather than just you know, trying to fix the person per se, but maybe provide them different outlets. Uh, for example, we've worked with some agencies, and of course this isn't gonna work for everyone, but um, you know, some agencies have found activities like yoga, which now you could also do virtually, uh, really help serve as a form of positive behavioral supports for people. Right, so this is a time where I guess you can you can innovate. And it might sound weird to say this, but <laughs> you can probably get away with a little bit more in terms of what you might want to try because people's expectations mm -hmm. of service delivery are quite low at the moment. Um, when you look at, you mentioned staff. Now, what do you think the critical things we should be educating staff on? Well, I'm not sure what staff education is like in over in Australia, but in the United States, staff don't actually get a lot of education and training. Um, really, there's few requirements other than a driver's license, a background check, and some minimal training about, you know, abuse, safety, that type of thing. So I think just more broadly, everything from dignity and respect to rights to nonverbal communication or alternative communication methods, um, uh, really a plethora of <laughs> training would right. be useful. Um, <laughs> so, and researchers found that when staff have more training, they have more self-efficacy and they provide better supports. And a lot of the reasons that people 
I mean, this applies more now, less less now, but um, before, a lot of the reasons people were kept at home and instead of going into the community was because staff weren't properly trained or didn't feel confident that they could mitigate any risks that could happen in the community. So. Um, really having comprehensive and ongoing training. And that could look like little snippets of training every day. It could look like, you know, lunch and learns or people doing research and bringing it back to the group and different types of modalities to really make it more comprehensive than those annual, you know, have to requirements about how to prevent abuse or promote safety, because that's, it's not going to lead to quality of life. Right, and when when I look at the history of CQL, it, its origins are, are clearly in in trying to define and, and create some sort of standard around um, uh, support and and services for people with disabilities. Which, interestingly, when I was reading the history of of the evolution of CQL, it it, it parallels the, the evolution and development of of APSI over at employment and then service system as well. Too. Yeah. yeah, there was an absence of of any standards and. And the interesting thing that I find about about looking at that is that we've just created a standard here for us um, for disability employment delivery here in Australia ourselves because we we've been working on developing a, a, a an accredited course um, and the federal government certifying body um, responded to us that they didn't think disability employment staff needed training <laughs> beyond wow. professional development and shocking <laughs> i kind of scratched my head and went well there's 60 years of evidence ignored so it just seems that even though we have certificates for disability support in australia which are recognized which are really a very very basic qualification uh, having written some of it and taught it it's it, it's not really up to standard but it's interesting that that despite all the, the the various you know UNCRPDs and every country has its various acts that support people mm -hmm. with disability, we still are not recognising disability support in its various forms, whether it be employment or lifestyle, as a serious occupation. Absolutely, and in the US, they're they're not paid well either. They're paid close to minimum wage, usually no benefits, no health care, no time off or paid time off. Um, you know, you could go make more money working at a fast food chain. Um, and you know, support staff are, are doing really hard work and um, they have to juggle a lot of different things at the same time. And we're not paying or training them to reflect that. Right. I, yeah, I I'm not sure what to say anymore about that. <laughs> so let's, let's step a little bit further. Let's look at the CQL certification process and particularly around the use of the, the personal outcome measure, um, which is a fascinating tool, um, which we don't see a lot of in Australia. Um, there are some organisations that do use it in Australia. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just a few. Yeah, it's more of a, it's the same battle we have with employment. It's more of an aberration than a, than a norm, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the, the, the certification in particular around the personal outcome measure. Um, and sure. And really the so, purpose behind that. Yeah. So 
I'll start with a little background on personal outcome measures. It was developed over 26 years ago, originally with focus groups with people with disabilities and their families, stakeholders, and content experts about what really mattered in people's lives. And at the time of those focus groups, they were finding that what really mattered to people with disabilities and their families was pretty radically different that to what providers thought really mattered. So they used that information, shaped this tool. You know, it's gone through various validation and reliability processes. And over time, it's also evolved to kind of keep up with the field and where it's going. And also because we recognize that quality is a continuous journey. So the personal outcome measures is the most recent addition is divided into five different sections covering human security, community, relationships, choices, and goals. And there's 21 different quality of life areas, you know, everything from health and safety to respect to rights, uh, participation in the life of the community, social roles, intimate relationships, and so on. And so how the personal outcome measures works is you have a facilitated conversation with the person with disabilities about the various topic areas, and it's pretty open-ended. And then afterwards, you also have a second interview with the person, with someone that knows the person well and also knows about organizational supports. And then finally, if you're missing any information, you could do record reviews or observations. And use all the data that you've gathered to go through these decision trees to decide not only if all the 21 outcomes, quality of life outcomes are present and present in the way that people desire, so what's important to them, it's very person-centered, but also for those 21 different areas, if organizational supports are in place to facilitate those outcomes. So what are provider organizations doing to promote people's quality of life and what's important to them? Right. So right. that's the gist of the personal outcome measure. So we train people on the tool and then to become certified interviewer, you not only need to participate in the four day training, but also you go through some coaching and some you know, practice interviews and then you have an iterator reliability test with one of our experts. And then at that point, you're considered certified as reliable. And there's also some continuing education pieces required as well. Right. And, and that seems to the flip side of that, of course, would be your basic assurances tool. Mm -hmm. So the basic, the personal outcome is just an individual assessment. And the basic assurances, which we use in accreditation, is an organizational assessment. And that looks at the human security and services and the quality of services for human service organizations. So um, with that tool, because it's integral to our accreditation process, what happens is a team of CQL people will typically they would come on site to your organization and they'll do interviews with various people in the organization at all different levels, including support staff to higher ups to HR. They'll do interviews and personal outcome measures with people receiving services. They do focus groups with people receiving services and focus groups with staff. They'll look at records and they'll use and they'll also do observations of different, you know, for example, group homes or work settings. They'll use all the information that they've gathered to go through almost 400 something items divided into 10 different sections to determine basically how well the organization is doing as well as where are their opportunities for improvement. So the basic assurances was actually part of what I utilized in the first study that we were talking about as well. Right. I'm just looking at another study you've done here, and which is titled The Relationship Between Disability, Employment and Ableism. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found in that study? 
Sure. So um, I do a lot of research on ableism. It's one of my passion areas of study. And for that particular study involved looking at the relationship of states, employment uh, statistics, so how many people with disabilities were employed in the state, that rate, as well with the so-called ableism level of the state. So to do that, I get access to secondary data from about 500,000 pe people in the United States, and which examined their conscious and unconscious disability attitudes. And so we aggregated the unconscious disability attitudes by state. And so we found that states that people were more ableist had lower disability employment rates. Um, so basically, you know, the culture of ableism translated into lower disability employment rates. Right. Okay. I'm going to, it's, it's almost a bit, a, bit, a, bit, a bit of a test for you today, but a year or two earlier, you actually did a really interesting piece on employment, whose choice is that, um, that that's a fascinating one because clearly one of the things that pops up all the time in employment services is, well, this is the, did the client want this job or is this just one of the jobs that you found mm -hmm. and when you do it, take it? Um, what, are you, what are your findings in that report? Uh, uh, testing your memory here a little bit. <laughs> which, which report was that? So I, I guess we think about what we're talking about is choice. You know, choice mm -hmm. in the employment setting. Whose who's choice is it? And your report seems to suggest mm -hmm. that that only about a third of the people that that you um, in the data yeah. actually actually had a choice of where they where they worked. Yeah, yeah. We do find that a lot of people are working in settings that they did not choose. Um, the the settings that people chose most often to be there were, you know, in integrated employment and supported employment. Least often were like enclave settings and day services. Um, so, I mean. <laughs> This is some things that we know that people want to be in integrated employment. We're just not allowing those choices. And so at CQL, we do talk a lot about informed choice. And we have what we call the three E's, education, exposure, and experience. So to make choices, it's not just about a choice between option A and option B. It's really making sure people understand what's out there and what they're interested in, and then having options to choose from accordingly. Right, and this this points to things like like using discovery and work experiences, uh, mm -hmm. and these type of uh, things where we actually dig deeper into the individual, and then also expose them to different settings so they can start to develop um, a feeling for where they want to be in the in employment rather than take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, <laughs> almost run out of test questions here for you, Carly. <laughs> so, when, when you look at um, the, in the work you're doing now, and we've talked about the challenges going forward because of the virus setting um, that we all find ourselves mm -hmm. in. Again, I'm going to circle back. What do you think, what do you see external to the virus? What do you see the, the major challenges going forward? in terms of service delivery? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we have a lot of long-term lingering issues, a lot of which in the United States relate to funding. Our service system is very underfunded, um, and that 
you know, impacts everything from employment services to community integration, community living, um, to behavior supports. You know, if we don't have adequate supports for people in the community in regards to baby hair supports that's why they're re-entering institutions and and also funding of course is related to support staff because they're underfunded as well and agencies aren't able to reimburse them to the degree that they need to so um i know that's that's also one of those broad brushes but a, a lot yeah. of it does come down to funding and Right now, for example, a lot of the community-based provider agencies, and it's external to COVID, but they're not really getting reimbursed or all the bills that are coming out aren't necessarily including HCDS, which is the main funding mechanism we have for people with IDD in the community in the United States. Right. I, I guess, you know, in a funny sort of way, these are the same, same things we, we, we've been, that have been challenging us for quite a few years, uh, but we don't seem to be progressing to terribly far mm-hmm. forward in the sense that everybody talks about, you know, um, having a normal life in the community and this sort of stuff, but yet the funding isn't there behind it. I mean, we, mm-hmm. I guess we have a bit of an advantage here in that we now have a national disability insurance scheme, which is an early intervention insurance approach to it that gives us access to more funding. But again, it's not perfect either because I think one of the things that we see here, and this may, I'd love your opinion on this, is that we still see service organisations not wanting to evolve to the new funding mechanisms. They're trying to actually operate with their legacy models in a new funding mechanism. And that seems... Mm -hmm. Well, that's clearly not going to work because daily what we see is people in the media going, well, you know, my supports have been withdrawn because my provider can no longer provide supports to me. Yet it would seem that the obvious solution would be to throw your legacy model out and and move to the new paradigm. What do you think holds organisations back? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think it's just uh, some organisations just are tied to that culture and philosophy of, um, you know, their duty to care for people. And I recognize, you know, that is important, but also the need, there's a need to balance that with dignity of risk. So uh, it's not just about caring pe- for people. It's about providing them with opportunities to take risks and chances. And if you become really entrenched in that, we just need to support people. Uh, you'll, continuously reduce people's opportunities, you'll reduce their choices. It's not necessarily quality services. I mean, people might be health and healthy and safe, but there's so much more to life beyond that, right? Um, so I, I think it's, and I think it's really easy to get trapped in that. Like we need to focus on getting people, making sure people are healthy and safe because that's a lot of what government requirements are about. You know, that's your duty to these people, but it, it's much larger than that. Right. One of the things that, that's popping up all the time at the moment in my feeds is the ADA is having its anniversary. Uh, in mm-hmm. the years that you've been involved in, in, in the area of human services, what, what do you think the impact of the ADA has been? We actually just recently put out, uh, we have annual or monthly newsletters. We put one out about the ADA and I actually specifically wrote about how you know, it's this landmark law, and the CRPD is actually in large part based on the ADA, but a lot of people with disabilities aren't really seeing advances in their life. There's been some research saying that people's lives aren't really better than they were before the introduction of the ADA, um, and I think we have, 
obviously we've made progress, you know, deinstitutionalization continues, people are more in the community than ever before, but there's a lot of work to to go. And actually some of the research that I've done looking at the relationship between residential settings and quality of life has found that some deinstitutionalization may be really what's called trans-institutionalization, where they move to one institution to an, a, a place that has a cultural institution, kind of like you were just talking about, where these settings might be physically in the community, but people aren't really integrated to the degree that they should be. They're not really experiencing much higher quality of life. So um, while it's impressive that the ADA has been around for 30 years, and certainly we've made progress, and people with disabilities are you know, in the community and integrated more than ever before, there's so much further to go. Right. And, and I think one of the things that, that I've seen over the years is with the movement to deinstitutionalization in Australia, people moved out into the community and they moved into group homes. And, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. I've seen many group homes that you're really just meeting institutions where the staff rule the roost and the mm-hmm. participants just happen to live there. Um, which suggests yeah. that we, we really haven't progressed. We've just created smaller institutions. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, and we found that a lot of people still aren't getting to choose where they live. Um, we did a, I did a national study on housing earlier this year, and most people with IDD didn't have a choice in where they lived. It was their family, if their family even got a choice. And they lived in these group homes, and their lives were so regimented, and there were so many almost artificial rules, like you can't have water in your room, you know, you can't fall asleep on the sofa, that it is kind of that institutional culture, even if it's physically located in the community. So there's a big difference between physical integration and social integration. And there's a a way to go for social integration. Still need to keep moving forward. Oh, absolutely. So if you had a magic wand and you could change a handful of things and why don't we just let's keep with behavior support as as the topic area and if your magic wand you could wave it and change behavior support what would you change i think more access to people for positive behavior sports as well as those preventative factors that could prevent things from becoming behaviors in the first place making sure people's physical and mental health needs are met, um, making sure people are fulfilled and have opportunities that are challenging and not menial. Um, I, I think that would, I think that's a lot related to our findings in the article, you know, you're treated with dignity and respect, which involves choices, opportunities, not being belittled, and that reduces challenging behavior. So uh, if we could really put in that preventative work, then I, I think that would go a long, long way. Wow. So this has been fascinating so, <laughs> so far today. And, and believe it or not, we've been actually at it for nearly 40 minutes. Um, is there one, one last message you'd like to leave us with around behaviour support and, and human services? Um, I think... We always try to say at CQL that quality is a continuous journey. So um, we try to meet people where they are. And so I know we're talking a lot about the negatives of the service system today, but, um, you know, there's only up from here, right? <laughs> Hopefully. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, absolutely. especially with everything going on right now, um, 
it's, I know it's really hard in a lot of agencies and people are struggling, but there are some opportunities for us to make some radical changes to the service system. And if that looks like funding, if that looks like how day or employment services are provided or the choices and opportunities people have, um, there's a lot of room for improvement right now. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's the evening where you are, of course. Um, <laughs> this is brilliant. I'm sure we'll have more conversations again, but really thank you for your time today, Carly. It's been brilliant. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Not a problem. You have a good evening. You too. Bye.